We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. One of the questions I sometimes ask my therapy clients is, what do you worship? It's a question that floors them because they imagine the answer would be Jesus or the Buddha or Allah. But what I mean is, where do you put your attention? A lot of people, the answer to that is money. So that's what I'd like to explore today, money and its relationship with the meaningful life. My guest has a complex relationship with money. John Lefebvre is a former lawyer, a musician and a philanthropist. In the late 90s, he became crazy rich in the dot-com boom. At one point, he owned one quarter of NetTeller, an online payment company, and had a private fortune of $350 million. It all turned nasty when he was arrested at his mansion on Malibu Beach by the FBI and charged with offences which carried a three-times 20-year jail sentence. John is the author of Good With Money, A Rich Guy's Guide to Gaining Everything by Losing It All, and All's Well, Where Thou Art, Earth, and Why. So, I think that to understand this journey, we have to go right back to the very beginning. Growing up, what was your relationship like to money? I stole quarters from my mom's purse to buy chocolate bars, and <laughs> I, was, I was a very normal kid. My dad was a soldier, and he died when we were about three in an automobile accident. So, my mom raised us as a single mom. Uh, she, she worked hard. She was a ticket agent at an airline's place, and then she just went to college on, you know, what uh, I guess we call it in America, they call it the VA bill, the Veterans Affairs Department looked after my mom's education. She became a teacher, taught English in the high schools in Calgary. And then eventually she kind of switched over into your racket. She uh, went back to a university and a great school in Spokane, Washington called Gonzaga and got a degree in counseling and went back to her teaching career in the sense that she became a high school guidance counselor. And so she struggled all her life to look after us, and she looked after us very, very well in all the circumstances. So I was always jealous of people who had money, but I never had the ambition really to get very much of it. And so I'm, I'm sort of the guy least likely to have fallen into this, but um, uh, it came my way by, you know, and we can talk about that a little more if you like. We'll talk about that in a moment. What I'd really like to sort of understand is the sort of messages subliminally you were getting from your mother. So if we had her here and we asked her to finish off the sentence, money is, for example, money makes the world go round. How do you think she would complete that sentence, money is? You know, it's a necessary fact of life. They don't want you to get lost in it. Don't let it own you. (laughs) So what were your ambitions when you were about to launch into the world? You know, what did you want when you were, I don't know, 16 years old? I suppose I wanted to be Bob Dylan, you know, (laughs) <laughs> good ambition you know, there, yeah when i when i was a kid we had some very very impressive gurus around you know and i i looked to guys like uh, from my spot side of the pond you know bob dylan neil young and from over on your side you know there's john lennon um, i really loved ian anderson the guy who wrote all the stuff for jethro tull donovan was a great poet for me so my ambition was to somehow live my life in that ethos and as i say 
I was not offered jobs to be in the band or to, you know, paint paintings for money. So I realized that I had to probably work and I dwindled to work quite late. I began university when I was about 25, but wound up with a law degree five years later. So So it sort of took you a while to find your, your way in the world almost. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Another one is that I found my way quite clearly when I was 17 on about two hits of Purple Double Dome LSD. <laughs> I, you know, came, I, I came uh, toe-to-toe with, uh, what shall I say? I, mean, there, I never talk about this because there's no way to prove it, but my maker, my me, <laughs> what is at the core of us? I listened to one of your other, uh, John McCullough, I think, who spoke about something within him, like a brilliant fish rising to feed. Mm. <laughs> I think he so called it his I was soul. Very, I, yeah, yeah. So I, I was deeply uh, impressed by what this thing that goes on within us. So when you met it at 17, your essence, let's call it, what did it say to you? Basically, now you've seen it, what are you going to do with it? And, and how did you <laughs> interpret that? I, I sort of took it to mean it's not enough to be a Trappist monk. You also have to get out into the world. And for me, it was a matter of trying to... Um, do something particular with it. You know, as my life progressed, it became trying to encourage people to understand what a magical, astonishing thing lies within us all. So that feels to be a little bit at contrary with being a lawyer, because lawyers are very down to earth and probably looking at the bad parts of ourselves. What's the worst that can happen? I think it's a lawyer question rather than thinking about the beauty inside us. So how well did you fit inside the legal profession? I didn't find it particularly rewarding. It didn't massage my soul very much, but I knew from the outset that, you know, I had a responsibility. You know, I got pregnant and (laughs) had to do something about it. I didn't have any arithmetic or science, so all I could do was read. So (laughs) that really didn't leave me anything else to do besides being a lawyer. So I, I decided, you know, if I want the world to take me seriously, one of the good steps I could take was to acquire some kind of a professional designation. You know, not that being a professional is any more important than being any other accomplished person. But, you know, in my mind, that's what I, I thought. I've got nothing better to do. Why don't I get some kind of a designation? It's not going to hurt me. <laughs> but one of the things you do say, and I think this is very wise, is a law education sets you up really well for life in one key thing. Perhaps you'd like to tell us what that one key thing is. Yeah, we don't learn that much law at law school, but what we learn is where to find it and how to seek it out. So that's one of the things is that we um, become familiar with and comfortable with not knowing the answer yet. But what you, what you gain is the understanding that you know how to work out the answer, and uh, and that's that's the best we can do. The other thing about law that's really important, Andrew, to me, is that fundamental to it is the you know this idea that you know it's a poor lawyer who who stops researching when they find the answer that suits them <laughs> because you know there's somebody out there who's going to find another one that suits him a lot and it's a lot different than yours. So what we need to do so. The legal education teaches us to look at everything from the other guy's point of view. And that's a really beautiful thing. Which is really important, actually, in my world, because, you know, effectively, when I'm working with couples, what I'm trying to do is to say, your worldview is perfectly valid. And your partner's worldview, which is actually different, is also equally valid. And being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes is a really good technique. And, you know, that is something that lawyers can do. And I'm sure we'll find it has actually put you in good stead. So were you envious of other people who did have the beachside properties and the fast cars? 
I admit I was, you know, I, I haven't always been this perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was a sucker for that. You know, I grew up in a generation where we, you know, we had the beach boys, Andrew, and everybody was entitled to a Corvette, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I grew up in that ethos and it didn't escape me, but other people were more focused on actually arranging, making those arrangements for themselves than I was. And I started watching them pull away from me. And it got to the point eventually where the people who were much younger than me were starting to pull away from me. And I thought, well, John, you know, it's not really not going to hurt to arrange some kind of a career so that at least in your time off, you can be an artist and follow culture and stuff. So what happened? How did you suddenly become this rich guy? Because this was not really within your life plan, was it? No, we, um, I had a client when I was a lawyer who uh, paid attention to the world a little bit differently than I did, but he noticed that people were gambling online and um, thought that uh, it would be a good little business model if somebody brought some professionalism, reliability, experience to the uh, money transfer side of online gambling. Uh, he was pretty busy with some real estate development projects and stuff like that, so he asked me if I'd like to husband it along with him. And I said, yeah, I'd like to. And I thought, you know, at that time, Andrew, it seemed to me an opportunity to get back up to possibly even net worth zero. <laughs> I, was, I was probably $100,000 in debt or so about that by this time with college and, you know, things that we, you know, waste our assets on when we're young. And so we started up that business and it took off uh, in an astonishing way. You know, that was in about 2000. Three years later, uh, we began plans to uh, go public on the London Stock Exchange. We did so in 2003, I think, achieved the market cap of around uh, $2 billion. And uh, it was uh, just through the roof. And then Uncle Sam put up his hand. Well, before we hear about Uncle Sam, I think let's let's enjoy Uh, let's enjoy the money for a moment before we have before we have to before we have to pay the bills, so to speak. So, you know, I mean, I could sort of if I got a million tomorrow, I could think of something that I would do with it. I would buy a flat here in Berlin. You know, I can imagine what I would do with that. But 350 million, I mean, where do you start when you suddenly realise you're worth that amount of money? I was fortunate because I was about 50 before this all started. So I had quite a bit of experience. I, I wasn't as swept away with it as I might have been, but you sort of don't count it after a while. You know, the week comes when you get a check for $17,000 and you go, holy cow. And then Six weeks later, you get one for $170,000 and you think, <laughs> and, and it keeps on pouring in. And, you know, I didn't take too much time to consider it at the time, but I realized I was headed for something really uh, monumental and that, uh, okay, just let's just ride this pony well and see how far, see how far it goes before it steps in a gopher hole. And uh, um I, I was flashy with my money and I, I did whatever I want and I've tried to impress people with it all, all the time, knowing that that was very superficial. I understood that, but I did it anyways, bought fancy cars and, you know, I had two homes on Malibu beach. Two homes? Know, one day. I, Can you live in two homes at the same time? Well, I'll tell you, I, I arrived at one of them one day after flying in from Vancouver and um, the hot water heater had blown out. And I was, and I, and I was, oh, geez, now I have to walk 20 houses down the beach to use the shower there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I acquired one house and it was very nice. And then um, I lived there for a while and I thought I'd upgrade. So for a while I had to, and then I sold the first one and I don't had one, but it was remarkable. I had a, 
one of the first BMW 600 series cars. The, the third one landed in, in North America. And then I missed it so much when I came back up to Canada that I bought one for there too. <laughs> <laughs> it was not, you know, not elegant, but you know, it was, um, I was very self-indulgent with my money, but I also knew to be generous with it. And I knew that from the beginning. You know, my, my, my bigger view of it is that, you know, if I didn't share enough of, the, of it, I didn't deserve any of it. And I thought that if nothing else, what was presented to me, Andrew, was an opportunity to show people, you know, what money means and what it doesn't mean. So that's part of my motivation with what I did. I think you may have seen the note that when I spoke to sentence before Uncle Sam, I know we're not there yet, but my lawyers made the point that by that time I had given away well north of $50 million to different charities and different people. And so I made a bit of a name myself for splashing that kind of money around too. So I would imagine just another day on Malibu Beach, I can, I can sort of hear the waves gently lapping in the background. We've got a beautiful view. Life is good. And do they knock on the door or do they ram it down like they do in the movies? Oh, they knock it down and they knock on, they knock the door and then they, they yell over the intercom system. This is the U.S. Marshals. You must come to the door immediately. <laughs> it was not entirely unexpected, but it was like 99% unexpected. But uh, it wasn't my first visit to that rodeo. Uh, I was arrested when I was 17 for selling LSD to policemen who were dressed up like hippies. And I... <laughs> So that was my like undergrad in going to prison was when I was, you know, 18, I was convicted and uh, did eight months of a one year sentence, you know, for being uh, a psychedelic drug pusher. So what were they charging you with? What had you done? Well, the three offenses they mentioned to me were conspiracy, racketeering and money laundering. But what we had done was we had taken the business online gaming, which was huge at the time. Mostly it was sports betting at the time, Andrew. Soon poker came, and then that became even bigger. But um, we set up a company that was very much like PayPal, but primarily to transfer money on behalf of American gamblers uh, so that they could gamble offshore. And somehow, in a technical way that myself and my listeners are going to, not going to understand, that was breaking some American laws, was it? Uh, yes, that was their allegation. It was never really proven in court because we just pled guilty to lesser offenses. But at the time, the Americans thought that they had jurisdiction over what we did on the inter- con- you know contracts that we enter into over the internet, a contract to bet, for instance. You know, um, I won't get onto this too long, but uh, there's an area of law called conflicts of law, and it's where they decide which jurisdiction, what the law of which jurisdiction applies to this particular transaction. When I was in law school, what they told us was the contract exists where offer and acceptance meet consideration. So I offer to buy a bike, you agree to buy it, you send me the consideration that the contract exists in my country, not yours. I see. So so anyways, that legal analysis was never tried. But, you know, I mean, there was, there was people standing up in Congress at the day and saying, if we let these online gamblers, people are going to be gambling at home in their housecoats. <laughs> Goodness gracious, can you imagine that? What does that do for the, you know, at that time, Gambling was owned by the states themselves. And two of the states legalized, uh, New Jersey and Nevada, uh, legalized, they licensed, they licensed it out to other private enterprises. But in all the other states except Hawaii and Utah, the governments themselves operated all the gambling. And so there was some undertone that possibly we were eating some of their lunch. 
So I would be completely and utterly terrified. I don't think I would sleep for weeks on end. How did you cope with all of that? Well, I was in jail that very night. You know, wow. I was uh, <laughs> I was in a little cell with an elderly German fellow who uh, was in jail for heat. He saw a car outside uh, Hollywood High School, and uh, it was there's three car, three big cases of cigarettes in the back seat. And then he said the car was open. So I took all the cigarettes because I didn't want some high school kid having all these cigarettes. You know, that was his excuse. It was super claustrophobic. And I had to, I had to gather myself. I really did. I was on the upper bunk and I'm, you know, the the week before, you know, I had a private jet. If I'd got up in the morning and decided I wanted to fly to Ireland to see my daughter, I'd phone my pilot and say, file a flight plan. Let's go to Ireland. Okay. (laughs) And now, now all of a sudden I couldn't, you know, um, go to the bathroom without asking somebody to turn the other way. <laughs> it was, but I, you know, at the same time, Andrew, you know, I knew that, you know, I wasn't a starving guy in Somalia, whatever was going to happen to me, I was probably going to wind up still with, you know, a, a house and a car and, a, you know, a life and stuff. And also I was surrounded by people who were looking at 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you know, um, I didn't know what I was facing at the time, but I, I knew that I was going to be out in a week or so on bail probably. And, um, you know, I just had to gather myself and say, you know, it's time to put on your big boy pants, John. (laughs) So what did you learn from that period when, you know, that you were facing the potential of uh, the rest of your life in in jail? What did you learn Mm -hmm. from that dark experience? I learned that most of those guys are just the same as you and me. You know, most people who wind up in jail are losers. They're not the really dangerous people, not always, but mostly they're just people who, you know, got unlucky. And there's not really much that distinguishes them from us. We are exactly the same. I was pretty stoned when I was a kid. And, you know, there's lots of people looking at, um, you know, hallucinogenics now to treat very uh, complex and difficult diseases like PTSD and, you know, depression and stuff. But we knew when we were kids that there was something very, very special going on there. And, and I was very fortunate to fall in with some people who looked at it that way. You know, they weren't just getting high and going to get drunk. You know, they were teaching me about, you know, Zen, Buddhism, you know, meditation, all these different things, right? And so I, I was fortunate to be among people who were uh, mentoring me very, very well when I was a young guy. One of the things we learned was that, you know, you can't really imprison the human spirit. Mm. And I thought, you know, and I, and I always made a, a big deal out of that for myself. And this was really what it was for me, Andrew, was an opportunity to, oh, I, had, I, you know, when I say I had to gather myself, what I did was I really said, John, you've learned something that's very profound. Here's an opportunity to practice it. You know, consider it being um, voluntarily into a, a monastic life for a while and See if you can look at it that way or something. And so, fortunately for you in America, if you have a lot of money, you can buy yourself very good lawyers. And you ended up with a month in the same prison that Jeffrey Epstein was in. Were you in the prison with him at the same time? No, no. He he was he was there years after. I was there in about two thousand and seven, I think two thousand six. So this was rich guy's uh, jail, wasn't it? Oh no. No, 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 no. This was, uh, it was not rich guy's jail at all. It was, uh, there was a high, high security institution in uh, downtown lower Manhattan. Uh, in the range that I was in, there were 96 people. They were all men. Only about eight of them were not black. So it was all black guys. My bunkie, you know, my cellmate was a young black man named Sam. 
just the long and the short of his, the answer is no. I was there with people from down on the street, all the way from guys with that, you know, diamonds in their teeth to, you know, Sam, my, the guy that was in my, he stood on the street corner selling heroin in South Bronx. Were you frightened? Yes. But I was also experienced. Like I told you, when I was younger, I had an experience with prison and it was uh, very valuable to me because by this time, by the time I was 55, I knew very well that the only way you can get in trouble is if you disrespect everybody else there. If you think you're better than them, you're, you're going to be in trouble. But, you know, if you treat people with respect and require the respect yourself, then you get along pretty well. And I, I had a hunch that was going to work, and indeed it did. I once heard Stephen Fry, the British actor, who yes. also went to prison, say, if you've been in the English public school system, you'll fit into the prison system with no problems whatsoever. It's the best training <laughs> possible. He's a bright guy, isn't he? Yeah. I assume that you were able to keep a reasonable amount of your wealth through this whole system. You paid off the American government, did you? And you were left with a reasonable amount of money? Am I correct yes. with that? Yeah. yeah. I, I tell people, Andrew, that um, I used to be ridiculously wealthy and now I'm just barely wealthy. <laughs> now, have you yeah. heard of the American writer David Foster Wallace? Oh, yes. He said something that I've always found incredibly powerful. And I'd like to ask you, as probably the only person I'll ever meet who can actually answer this question for me. He says there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some kind of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths, is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. And now this is the bit that you can help me with. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Is that true that um, even if you've got 350 million, it can sometimes feel like that you never have enough? Is that the reason why these rich people keep on trying to get richer and richer? I don't understand it really very well, Andrew, except that it's probably a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. In our society, we're taught what it means to be wealthy is to hoard it unto yourself, right? And my, my view of it is that that is more or less, that, that's sort of like the wanking of wealth, right? <laughs> because it comes... It come, it come. Explain to me <laughs> the wanking of wealth. It's not the true deep love of wealth, right? The, you know, we help ourselves and we hoard it unto ourselves and we're always afraid that somebody's going to come and take it away to ourselves. So in other words, it doesn't last long. The only way you can, the only way you can make it work again is to by doing it again, getting more, <laughs> you see? Whereas the true love of wealth, the dividend of generosity is gratitude. And that's a dividend that pays forever. It never, ever stops paying. You know, I'm still running into people all the time who say, you know, whatever is 15 years ago, you gave me $500 and it saved my life. Right? I mean, this one lady let me know once that, you know, I saved her daughter's life. I said, really? I, I, I didn't really know. She said, you know, her daughter had gotten some kind of trouble in Ecuador and she needed to be medevaced out. And I guess I gave her $5,000 to get her daughter back home from Ecuador and her daughter's doing fine now. But you know, even when you, uh, you know, a, a single mom who's not making rent this month, and if you just give them 500 bucks, Andrew, for the next 20 years, you are the most glorious thing that ever happened to that person, right? And so when we learn to be generous with our money, two things happen to us. One of them is that we're super loved for it, right? 
And the other is that we begin to realize that, you know, the most wonderful thing that you can do with money is engender gratitude with it. <laughs> and that's, that's a reward that never, ever stops giving back. I sleep so much better than I would have if all I wanted to do was, you know, make sure nobody, you know, got any of my stash. <laughs> you see what I mean? And I've developed that into a big economic theory. Maybe we'll have another show one day and talk about that. But the long and the short of that is that I think when we improve the human resources of everybody on this planet, we increase their productivity. And I believe that wealth is infinite. And everybody always says, you know, our economies are going to break unless they grow. Well, only about 20% of our planet is used to the kind of things that you and I take for granted. If we take the other 80% of them and develop their human resources so that they can look after themselves too, we're not going to be poorer for it. We're going to be richer for it. We're going to have more customers for our you know, Netflix content or whatever it is we're doing to make a living in, in, you know, in our world. You know? So I think that long-term, we'll learn that generosity is by far the most sure roadway to wealth. Because I think we've sort of discovered that actually having 350 million isn't going to give you meaning in your life. But at the other end of the scale, if you don't have the basics, it's pretty difficult to get meaning as well. It's trying to find the sweet spot in the middle, I think is what you're saying. Am I right about that? Yes. And I think as far as individuals go in the world, that's exactly the right attitude. But my, my thesis is that we're very privileged in our society. And you and I take a bunch of things for granted that we don't really even realize that we take for granted. I call them universal rights now. For instance, uh, security and respect for the person, reasonable access to food, clothing, and shelter, reasonable access to the tools of self-improvement like education, access to health care, access to basic justice and finance, and finally, uh, access to a healthy environment. We take all of these things for granted in our free society, and I think we should because I think we are entitled to those things. Those are just the basics. And so I think the responsibility of freedom is to make sure that everybody else who is less fortunate in the Freedom Department has a crack at getting those basics too. If we do that, then we'll have earned our wealth. But you know, the aphorism I came up with, Andrew, is that you know those who are happy with the advantages of freedom but careless about uh, others who are uh, less fortunate and could not care less about those who are less fortunate, most people have not earned their freedom. They've merely taken liberties. That's really profound. And I think that all we need to do really to justify our wealth, and wealth is a beautiful thing. It's like George Harrison said, if we're going to fix this world, it's going to take a whole lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think we really, really need to take a different view of wealth. Wealth is not a bad thing. The only thing that's bad about wealth is hoarding. The only thing that's bad about wealth is when we don't pay our fair share. That's what's bad about it. When we pay our fair share, and particularly us really wealthy guys, if we pay our fair share, there'll be free health care, you know, free child care, elder care, education, university education, all of those things we can afford for everybody on the planet, really. Now, you, a few years ago, married Hillary, and you called this marriage Seventh Heaven, because it was the fourth time for you and the third time for her. So when it comes to relationships, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh, I don't know. I my younger self was very strange in, in well, maybe not that strange in the sense of unusual, but strange from the way I look at things now. I always wanted the most of the things that I couldn't have. What I would tell myself now is 
my younger self is, John, sit back and relax and become comfortable with yourself. You can't really love somebody unless you are your best self. You can't give them love. You can crave their love, but you can't give them love until we become our best selves. So the most important thing is to go within ourselves and understand what profound value there is in each and every one of us, all of us, you and I and the starving lady in Somalia whose baby's dying at her breast. We all have that same thing inside us that is immeasurable wealth. You know, uh, we all have the same capacity to dream and we also all have the same capacity for disappointment. I think what we need to do is find that self-worth within ourselves. And then we've actually got a gift that we can give somebody that we fall in love with. And how do we find our self-worth, do you think? Well, I like to tell people that part of us that dreams at night, that's an immeasurably creative and innovative and poetic part of us, it doesn't go to sleep when we wake up. But we let it be busied up all day long with concerns like about, oh, you know, Jennifer's coming for supper in the weekend and she's a vegan, so I have to get a vegetarian dish. We're not we're out of white wine. You know, uh, Billy's got to get some new skates for playing hockey. I've got a golf tournament on Saturday. What are we going to do about the birthday? i got to get my wife, you know. And all day long, the tax man, you know, I've got my lawyer going to talk to my All these things drift into our minds. And we entertain them as soon as they come into our minds. What I want to encourage people to do if they want to get to know themselves is take a half an hour every day and treat all of those things that drift through our minds exactly for what they are. And what I I mean by that is they're friends that drop by without phoning first. You know, they're like (laughs) clients without an appointment. You know, their clients are about an appointment. They can't, you know, and most of them are important. They are important things and they're responsibilities. So I'm not dissing that. But what I am saying is for half an hour a day, treat those things for what they are, clients without an appointment, and just sit quietly and see what comes up in that part of us that dreams at night, because it's still there in the daytime. And every one of us in the world has that magical thing within us. If we would just allow it to be what it is, undistracted by I haven't paid my taxes yet this month, (laughs) all of those other sort of mundane things that we get distracted by. So I think if we look at that and sit quietly for half an hour and let that dreamer in us uh, solve some problems, it always happens. If you do it, you know, you're always going to solve a problem in that half an hour. (laughs) And it's a a magical tool that we have, but we disregard it because, oh, I forgot I got to get those chocolate chips for the cookies I'm making tomorrow. (laughs) And this is what we're sort of spending this miracle of consciousness on. And fair enough. I mean, it's a, it's a lovely life to make chocolate chip cookies. But what we have to do is actually let that part of us that dreams at night be free in the daytime, too, and bring a little bit of that sensibility. And then we'll understand our true worth. So let's go back to how I started off, which was asking how your mother would complete the sentence money is. How would you complete the sentence after everything you've experienced as far as money is? Money up to a certain level is a necessity. And beyond that, it's a wonderful tool to be able to help. People sometimes tell us that we're not really that special on earth. All beings on earth, you know, have their own kind of specialness. But there is one thing that differentiates us from all the other beings. And that is we can help them, right? You know, a dolphin can drag us back to shore, you know, or something like that. But if a dolphin gets sick, we can operate on it. We can help. We can go out and do things. We can dream things, and once we dream them, then we can wake up and make them real. We have this capacity, and the capacity 
uh, of consciousness or whatever awareness, whatever it is, that none of the other creatures on the planet have it to the extent that we have, to the extent where they can operate on us. You know, the day that I get COVID and an orca gives me the cure, I'll accept defeat in this argument. But it's a very special thing that we have a capability to do, and that is to help. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. So one of the advantages of becoming a supporter of The Meaningful Life is you can get a second opinion on some kind of problem that you're dealing with from myself and my wide variety of guests. And John, I've got a letter and I'd like to have your thoughts on this. I am 27 and I just don't seem to be able to launch myself into the big wide world. My contemporaries at university have found jobs and careers. And although I started to train as an accountant, I soon realised it was not for me. My problem is I don't know what that might be. I try one thing and then another. I'm not certain if it becomes too hard, I just lose interest, or I get one knock back too much. But I can't get a toehold anywhere. I hate being dependent on the bank of mum and dad. My younger brother and his girlfriend have just announced their engagement and they're expecting a child. It's not what I want, at least not now but I'm envious of his certainty. It seems life is passing me by and I'm running out of time. So what were your thoughts when you read that, John? Well, I had some immediate thoughts that weren't very helpful because they were, you know... Old man thoughts. Well, I, you know, well, I did, you know, know, I think it's really important, first of all, to identify with what we actually are as compared to what we do. Mm, Very wise. Tell me what's the difference between being and doing? Explain that to me, John. Well, if we are wise, just being that, it's impossible to do that and not do something about it. But I would say, you know, here's the difference to me, the difference between being confused about what we are as compared to what we think makes us worthwhile. I think the cumulative of our knowledge and our experience, some of us think that that's what we are. I mean, that's what we are, the cumulative of our knowledge and of our experience. But I don't think that's right. I think what's right is that knowledge and experience are kind of like data and code, you know. They're important, but completely useless without computing power. You know, we are not the data and code. We're the computing power. So what I think it means is we have to understand that we have this capacity of consciousness and caring and helping and loving. We are the universe's vessels of astonishment. We are the universe's vessels of love. We are the universe's vessels of helping. And if we come to terms with that, then we're probably going to be happy with whatever we do in our life. And another thing I would add is that, you know, um, in one of the songs I wrote, I wrote, I'm on my 14th job and my fifth career. So I want people to I want people to understand that you simply can't know when you're 27 what you're going to want to be when you're 50. But you can know this. You can know that there are certain tools that I can acquire to equip myself for whatever I want to do. So, you know, when I was a kid, we used to go to university to get an education. Now people go to university, go to school to get a career. And I think that's kind of a little bit ass backwards, if not more than a little bit. We sharpen up the tool. That magical tool that I refer to within us all, 
our consciousness, our awareness. And you do that in part by learning to learn and then reconsidering the things we've learned and trying to think if that's the best explanation yet or if we can get a better explanation. Those are very, very important things to do. I was struck by the fact that our correspondent is envious of his younger brother's certainty. And I wonder if we should ever be envious of certainty. That's a good point. (laughs) I almost think that being able to embrace uncertainty is sort of a bit of a talent. What do you think, John? Oh, yeah. And it's a huge blessing if you can do that. It's a wonderful blessing. And not to change the subject, because I think it's sort of the same subject, but your correspondent thinks he's envious of the certainty of his brother getting married and wanting to devote himself. Your correspondent is fortunate because he doesn't have somebody he loves who wants to have a child yet. He can actually go be a Zen monk. He can go, you know, do whatever, you know, go go to school or don't go to school. You know, I quit law at one point in my career to go busk on the corner and everybody thought I'd lost my mind, but I hadn't. I I felt I'd quite regained it. (laughs) As we said before, you know, my law wasn't that rewarding for me, but the fact that he is lacking in certainty is it's a good, if he could be comfortable with it, that would be beautiful. But at 27 and not burdened by responsibilities that will be labeled for us for, you know, 25 next years, is actually a very, very wonderful position to be in. And I think, you know, I, I would encourage a guy to just experience his freedom as much as he can and uh, drift a little bit if he can towards the, the idea of acquiring tools for whatever comes later and not worry that much. You know, I, you, you might decide to be a lawyer and wind up an entrepreneur. I think that's a, I think that's a good idea is actually looking for tools rather than a job. So, for example, my tools is I can write And that is something that is useful in lots and lots of different places. The other tool I have is I Mm -hmm. can ask questions. And that is useful in lots and lots of different places. Your tool is you can put yourself into other people's shoes and see what the other guy might be thinking. And those are sort of transferable. And I wonder if he's looking for jobs rather than developing tools. And it takes time to develop tools. Yeah, I'm concerned with your correspondent that maybe they're identifying a little bit too much with the career rather than, you know, identifying themselves with what they do. And it's perfectly understandable, Andrew. You know, I remember feeling when I was younger that none of these hot women that I'm going to university with want anybody who's a taxi driver. (laughs) But be careful what you wish for, because, you know, a woman who's perfectly content with the taxi driver their love is way more valuable than a woman who wants to be looked after (laughs) you know their self-esteem is so much more rewarding than somebody who's kind of like selfish about their station in the community right so i think what we're saying is embrace uncertainty develop tools don't put too much pressure on yourself but the one thing that i'm wondering is this feeling of not being able to get a toehold. It seems he's going from one place to another to another without really truly exploring any of those. You know, I would encourage a a person in that position to understand it is not a rush and there's lots and lots of time to change directions, but it's always a good idea to do some kind of self-development. You know, it it could be like professional self-development or it could actually just be sitting quietly and becoming comfortable with sitting quietly. If we can love sitting quietly, that's one of the most beautiful things, right? That's one of the most beautiful gifts because 
you know, that shows that we appreciate our true nature. So, John, thank you very much for being my guest today on The Meaningful Life and being a witness to what makes life meaningful. So I have to ask you, what makes your life meaningful? Well, we had a Zen teacher here not too long ago where I live, and he started his speak- speaking to us by saying, the most important thing that we can pay others in our society now is attention. <laughs> and so, and I admit it might be a weakness, but it's also a blessing that I really deeply appreciate. For instance, Andrew, you're having paid some attention to me today. And that, so I cherish that. I don't think we should be, you know, jonesing it or being addicted to it, but I really cherish that. Yeah. The kind of attention that I appreciate the most from others, ironically, is the kind of attention that I get from them when I pay attention to them. <laughs> and so there's the magic in that. You know, it's almost a drunkard's dream, isn't it? The easiest way to get attention is to pay attention. And I like that answer. I think it's really good. The meaning of life is giving attention to other people and to what's around you as well. That's uh, one of the most profound uses of our life, that's for sure. So this is where the conversation has to end for most people. But if you're a supporter of The Meaningful Life, the conversation goes on. I'm going to ask John about the three things he knows to be true. And we'll also talk, both of us, about what we've learned from this uh, conversation. And if you want to find out how to become a supporter, here comes all the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you. Thank you.